Good morning. Can you hear me? You being here this morning is not an accident or a coincidence. Most of you are here because you believe and follow the Lord Jesus. For some of you, maybe you're here to listen. You're not sure yet, but something's caught your attention. I believe that's God. And if you're here as a believer, you've heard the gospel invite go out, the call of God go out, and you've responded and you are following him. And my sense is that God wants to speak a word of encouragement. This is something I've had since the beginning of May. And primarily there's two things that intertwine. Happily, they've already come out this morning. (laughs) One is God's call on your life. And the other is God's promises. So if we look at the call of Jesus to the disciples first in Matthew 4, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's not publicly known. He has been baptised by John the Baptist. He's had the temptation in the wilderness with the devil. But he isn't drawing big crowds at this point. And he calls the first disciples... So Matthew 4:17 it says from that time Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand While walking by the sea of Galilee he saw two brothers Simon who is called Peter and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen And he said to them follow me and I will make you fishers of men Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. I wonder what sort of call Jesus had. Because it wasn't the call of just a mere man, was it? There was something about him, even then, before he was known, that made them leave their very livelihood, everything that they knew, and follow. Now, if we look back, I'm going to rewind into the Old Testament now, through approximately 2,000 years of biblical history to Genesis. Not quite to the beginning. We meet um, a descendant of Noah. And I think, if I've counted right, Ten generations down from Noah, we have a man called Abram. Now, we know him by another name, Abraham. God later gives him a new name to show that he's not the same person anymore. But here he's called Abraham. Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, the passage is headed, the call of Abraham. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Just note how similar that is to the call of Jesus, where he calls the disciples from their nets, from their father. And he calls Abram, over 2,000 years before, from everything he knows, from his land, his people, his father's household. There's about to be a huge step of faith And it continues in verse 2. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. 
I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you. Sorry, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran and he took his wife, Sarah, Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. So I just want to note there something that's already come out this morning, that God's call is dependent on his name. And we'll, we'll look at that again later. But when he called you, and when he called Abraham, yes, we all have a part to play, we're not robots, but we can't do what God can do. Only he can do that. He is the God of the miraculous. We're not. I'm not going to go there now, but in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, where God is speaking to Moses and he's giving him promises, he punctuates the passage with this phrase, I am the Lord. I will call you. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but he, he makes his promises and it's punctuated all the way through. If you count how many times it says, I am the Lord, in Exodus 6, verse 7. So back to Abraham. God calls him to leave what is familiar everything he's known so far, and to move into the unknown by faith. God calls us to live by faith. Abraham is no longer defined by the old things. The new things have begun. And it's the same with Jesus when he called the disciples. We see here that God gave a promise to a couple who had no children. Did you note that Abraham was 75 years old? when he was promised to be made the father of many nations. And so this couple had gone through the grief of not being able to conceive. We see this back in chapter 11, verse 30, that Sarah was barren, she had no child. But with the call of God came the specific promises. And then we see that the response is worship. Here we see it in verse 8, that he pitches his tent builds an altar, and, and then Abraham calls back to God. So God calls him, and Abraham calls back to God and worships him. And it's the same for us. Our response is to call back to God and to worship him. And worship is not confined to singing songs on a Sunday. No, this is calling to God through Monday, through Tuesday, through Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. All the parts of life that are actually the hard bits this is quite easy, isn't it, relatively speaking, being here together. But life, the nitty-gritty of life, it's the rest of the week. That's when he wants us to call to him. And then moving on in chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says in verses 4 to 6, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son, Abraham, shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, trick question. <laughs> then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
Now, I think there's evidence to believe from the passage that God's call and his promises that he'd made to that couple had become their desires. They wanted it for their lives. They wanted the promise to come true. People say in the Christian world that we need to hold on to the promises. And yeah, maybe. I feel it's important to remember that it's not about holding on to the promises. It's about holding on to the promise giver. He is the one to hold on to. Because if he's spoken a promise, it's going to happen. So the important thing is that we don't lose heart. And we see with Abraham, and I think this is helpful for us because we're all human, we're all flawed, that in Genesis 16, he tries to make that promise happen his own way. So, in fact, it's his wife that helps by suggesting that Abraham tries to have a child with her servant, Hagar, an Egyptian servant. And as a result, Ishmael is conceived and born. And when that happens, Abraham is 86 years old. So that's 13 years after the original promise we saw in chapter 12. 13 years and still no child of his own. Well, no child of their own. But it wasn't God's way. And God is so gracious with us, isn't he? Even when we try and do things our own way and figure things out because we're desperate for what he's spoken to come true. In verse 17, we see that when, sorry, in Genesis 17, when Abraham is now 99 years old, God speaks and makes a covenant with him, and that's when he changes his name from Abraham to Abraham. And he says, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And then in Genesis 21, Abraham is a hundred years old and the Lord visited Sarah as he said and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Now when I read that, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. That really reminded me of somewhere else in the Bible. Somewhere else where it was biologically impossible to conceive. Yes, Mary. All these images in the Old Testament point to Jesus, who is to come. It's a foreshadowing of what is to come. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, which means he laughs. <laughs> so did Abraham see an heir born? Yes. He did. Did he live to see his offspring numbered like the stars and a great nation? No, no, that was actually several centuries later. And I love what Andy shared, the last but one preach, when he talked about generations. He talked about if all we do in this generation is faithfully raise children and young people who will follow him, that's enough. Because there's always a bigger story arc than our own lives. So did Abraham see God's promise fulfilled? Yes and no. He saw part of it. Was the Lord's promise fulfilled? 
Absolutely it was. So I'm just going to stay in the Old Testament a bit longer and I'm just going to zip through a bit of chronology to help, help us all out. It helped me out looking at this. So from Abraham, we then go to Isaac, next generation, the son of the promise. Then Isaac marries Rebekah and they have twins, Esau and Jacob. Jacob, one of those twins, was chosen and had 12 sons. One of those 12 sons was sold into slavery. He was Joseph. We know Joseph, a multicoloured coat, the dreamer. Then we had Moses, the plagues, the Red Sea, the provision of God, the manna from heaven. Then we have, Moses doesn't get to walk into the promised land, but he's almost there, isn't he? And Joshua and Caleb go into the promised land. Then we have the time of the judges, then the time of the kings, and then the people of Israel are exiled out of their land, and the prophet Isaiah speaks God's words to his people in the southern kingdom of Judah. So I think the northern kingdom had, come into exile, had gone into exile by then, and the southern kingdom was still there, but they were going to be exiled shortly. And God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, and I'm in 43, verse 1. You'll know these words very well. The Lord says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Who's in control? When you pass through the waters, when you walk through fire. It doesn't sound comfortable, does it? Would you like to pass through fire? I wouldn't. Sounds hot. Sounds dangerous. And I definitely wouldn't want to be in waters there where I'm not in control. I'd like to uh, stay on my feet, maybe paddle a little, but I definitely don't want to be in waters that feel like they're going to overwhelm me and drag me under, because I might struggle to breathe. But what we see throughout the Bible is if we don't get out of our depth, how are we ever going to call on him? The hotter the fire the deeper the waters, the more urgency and passion in our prayer. Lord, help me, deliver me. But with God's promise, sorry, with God's call, always comes his promises because we are going to need them. There's another passage you'll know very well. Um, Tim Keller would call it a promise box passage. That's one of those where you lift a verse out of the Bible and you take it out of context and then you don't appreciate where it was spoken and why. So I'm in Jeremiah 29, so a little bit later, I think um, the southern kingdom are in exile by then. Or are they about to be? They're in exile. Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter. I've seemed to have missed off the verse number. I think I'm in verse 3. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've, 
whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who's in control? Whom I, the Lord, have sent into exile. And then he gives instructions, and I'm going to move on to a bit of verse 7 there. He instructs them to seek the welfare of the city where they've been exiled into. I mean, we can't imagine this, can we? We're sent into another land, and God says, pray for that land, because in its welfare, you will find your welfare, verse 7. And then, I'm just going to go to verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, do you recognise this? And not for evil. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. <coughs> 70 years. Did you get that? 70 years before they were going to see the promise fulfilled. Abraham, 25 years, was it? Yeah, 75 to 100 between God speaking and him fulfilling. Are you getting this message that God doesn't work in our units of time? He is sovereign, and that needs to go at the top of every list. For scripture, for your life, for your circumstances, whatever you're going through right now. He is sovereign. He is Lord. And there is nothing across time and eternity and across this globe that he doesn't know about and that he didn't see coming. And his call and his promises are dependent on him. I am the Lord. We see this further, incidentally, if we go into the New Testament and read what Paul writes in Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 9 to 11. He's talking about where we've just been looking. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, next generation, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, the son of the promise from Abraham, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. I just think that is exquisite. Before they were even born, God chose Isaac. He chose Jacob. And he chose he chose them because he because he could. <laughs> it wasn't about how good or how bad they were. It was about God choosing. We see a very similar thing in 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, where it says, God called us to a holy calling, not because of our works because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Different unit of time entirely. 
God is not confined to narrowness of sight, to narrowness of understanding. We are. I know I am. That is why we must depend on him continually. And we need to depend on him more. We can never depend on him too much. The signposts of scripture point towards, towards him working over time with his promises. We know this is true for us. He's not a God of quick fixes. He can fix things quickly. He can do instant miracles. But he isn't a God of quick fixes. He will take as long as it needs to transform us and change us to be more like Jesus. See, he knows that we're weak. But do we know that? I think it, well, speaking for myself, <laughs> the further I go, the more I realise how weak and flawed I am. Note that Abraham had to wait until it was completely biologically impossible before he had Isaac. So we know it's about him. Remember Moses stuck with the Egyptians behind him and the Red Sea in front. It was impossible. There was no way out. But God parted the sea. Why? So that Moses would know, so that we would know. It's not about Moses. It's about him. So what does he want of us? He wants us to believe in him. He wants us to call to him with everything, everything that is within us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be full of him. And you know what? We're really good at being full of ourselves and it can look <coughs> two different ways. Tim Keller wrote an excellent little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Excellent book. Very small very quick read, oh, but you, you can't get it in one reading. I mean, it's one I just keep going back to. And we, we're full of self. We're either full of how great we are or we're full of how bad we are. But God doesn't want us to be full of how great we think we are or how gifted we think we are or how bad we think we are or how much we think we've blown it. He knows that. He wants us to be full of him. So I'm just going to pause here just to talk about waiting for the fulfillment of things because I think this is so countercultural because we live in an even more instant world, I think, than any generation that has gone before with mobile phones. We have every form of conceivable distraction available to us. Every conceivable form of a quick fix. We can do instant shopping. We can instantly find out that song that's been going around our head that we can't remember the rest of. And, you know, anything. What was the name of that actor that, oh, I'll just Google it. Everything. We don't have to wait for anything now, do we? Do we? We can have instant food. Everything's instant. But there are no shortcuts to godly character. See, waiting reveals our flaws to us. 
God knows about them. It's a test of character. What will it be? Will we choose disobedience? Will we choose trying to make it happen our way? Will we choose obedience and God's way? Andy was speaking last week about the divine gardener. Now, anyone that knows me knows I'm a gardener. I absolutely love gardening. And one of the things I love about gardening is it is not instant. I mean, you can actually do instant gardening, but it's not me. What I love, right, is when you plant a seed, which looks like it's nothing. And then you have to wait. And you have to go through the seasons. And eventually it becomes something. Or you plant a tree, a young tree. And it starts off and it's smaller than you. And you think, how is a bird ever going to nest in that? But you have to wait. And you have to let the seasons come. And weathering has to take place. And all the time, Andy mentioned last week, he'd planted some fruit bushes. And he said they did nothing in the first year. And I did actually want to shout out, they did! They did do something! You just couldn't see it. They were growing roots. <laughs> it's a good job he's not here. <laughs> they were growing roots. And that's what the Lord says about us. We see it in the parable of the sower. You need the seed, the word of God, to go down into us. Then it might take roots so that when the storms come and the, or the drought comes or the hot sun, whatever it is, the wind comes, we have roots in which we can stand firm. And a lot of the time in the Bible, I notice this little phrase, once you've seen it, you see it everywhere. In due season. They bear fruit. In due season. We see it in Galatians 6, verse 9. See, can you make winter come now? Can you make spring come when you're in the middle of winter? No, no, you can't. <coughs> Can you change the rhythms of the universe? Can you make black currants come just because you fancy black currants in December on your bush in the garden? No. In due season, when it's time, when God has appointed it to happen, that's when it will happen. So in the New Testament, we see the divine call. And it's still the call punctuated by I am. I am the Lord. But someone said this already. There's a new way. There's a gateway. And it's through Jesus. He's the way. It's in Jesus. It's through him. That is how we find the fulfillment of God's call to us. Whatever it is. Whatever it looks like in your life. And it's not going to be the same for any two of us, although there'll be things in common. Because he's called you to do things. And it's a really personal call. It's got your name on it. And some of you know what he's called you to do. Some of you have started out on it. For some of you, it, it might not be that you see the actual fruit of it, the actual substance of what you know is planted in your heart. You might not see it for a long period of time. But it's his call to you, and you know because it burns within you. The Holy Spirit makes it burn within you. You can't get away from it. 
We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul opens his letter. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Now, J.B. Phillips' version says commissioned, commissioned to be an apostle. This word called, it's a very rich word. I don't think our English language really illustrates it as well. Appointed, invited, summoned. And Paul knew a thing about calling. Think where he was. He was persecuting the believers. God revealed himself on the Damascus Road, didn't he? And spoke to him and gave him a new name because he wasn't called Paul. He was called Saul. That's what God does. He changes us from what we were into something completely new. Old way, new way. Old identity, new identity. So in Romans 8, we find this tremendous passage. I think it's very similar to the Isaiah and Jeremiah passages we've already seen. You probably know where I'm going. Chapter 8, verse 28. And we know but that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. This just blows my head. It's not big enough to take it in. Because it reaches back into before we existed. He's known us. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So he had in mind that he was going to make us like Jesus before the ages began. But then come the promises, because we're going to need them. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? By the way, none of that sounds very comforting, does it? It's reminding me of fire and water again. Getting out your depth. Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Here's the gateway through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are not cosy verses. They're not fluffy cushions. We don't need fluffy cushions when we're going through all of those trials. They are anchors for the storm. They are rocks on which to stand when we're in the storm and, and the terrain is rough and when all else is shaking. So the gospel invitation goes out today as it did in Matthew. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Take a step of faith.
follow Jesus. He knows everything about you, even the things that nobody else knows about you. He knows them. They're not hidden from him. The one who holds the rhythm of the seasons in his hands. There was two specific things I felt, and this is going back to May when I was preparing for specific people. I don't know who you are, but I just trust that the Holy Spirit will reveal in your heart if this is a word for you. And the first thing is to people who have had a promise spoken by God and there's been a delay. And it's simply this. It's not overdue. You're not too old. Don't give up. His word, his promise, is the foundation on which to stand. In due season. Beautiful word. And the second thing was about rough terrain of life. So that's when life gets tricky. I mean, for some of us, it feels like life is tricky all the time, doesn't it? But I was reminded of, you know the passage in Daniel chapter 3 where Daniel's friends are thrown into the furnace and when they were thrown in, they make it seven times hotter for them. And sometimes in life, it feels like the dial has been turned up to unbearable. I couldn't actually find it in the passage in Daniel. So I hope this is correct. Say, Keith, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. But I thought, I remembered when I read Daniel recently, that in the furnace, um, they were worshipping God. Certainly, when the people look in to see what's going on, and Daniel's friends are unharmed, they don't even smell singed, do they, when they come out? Um, They see a fourth person in there with them. And that's Jesus, isn't it? Or an angel of the Lord? I think it's Jesus. Or foreshadowing? Hmm. But he wants us to worship him in the heat of the day and in the dark of the night. Whatever is going on, he wants us to worship him. I just want to finish with two scriptures. 2 Corinthians 1.20, which I just find a mystifying verse. I love it. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And the other one is 2 Peter 1 verse 10. I'm reading it from J.B. Phillips again. Because I've said a lot about how the promise and the call depend on God, and that is absolutely true, and that is the right emphasis, I feel. But as I said earlier, we're not robots that just go along whilst God makes his promises come true. There's also our, oh, impossible tension. (laughs) I'm looking at Keith looking at me thinking, but also... We're called to do our part, aren't we? And this is a helpful verse for that. So, set your minds then on endorsing 
by your conduct the fact that God has called and chosen you. I'll read that again. Set your minds then on endorsing by your conduct, how you live, the fact that God has called and chosen you.